You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 54 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode we are going to talk about ancient Egypt with Egyptologist Eric Wells. Eric also has his own podcast called Eric's Guide to Ancient Egypt. Are you looking to take your knowledge of Egypt to the next level? You've come to the right place. Welcome to Eric's Guide to Ancient Egypt with your host, historian and Egyptology PhD grad from UCLA, Eric. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So um, tell the audience a bit about who you are. So my name is Eric Wells. I'm uh, Egyptologist. Just uh, at UCLA, I just finished my PhD in Near Eastern Languages and Cultures a year ago. Uh, my research uh, sp- specifically focuses on religion in ancient Egypt in the New Kingdom, which is a period from around 1500, 1550 to about 1070 before the Common Era. So I, I focus a lot on religion, on history and, and society, and we had a uh, connected through Twitter and just started talking a little bit about Egypt and uh, you invited me on and I'm happy to, to come on and, and talk with you a little bit about it. Yeah, and you, you do your own podcast as well. I, I do, yeah. I, I, it's a, it's, well, I know that uh, you record these more in advance, but I, I started one about a month ago um, called Eric's Guide to, to Ancient Egypt. Uh, and it's been a lot of fun. I, I you know, have to say that it's uh, been a really positive experience you know sometimes you worry that you know when you're online there's a lot of negativity but it's really just been you know you know super positive i've only done about you know six or so episodes but you know everyone's been great and you know very very engaged and for me it's it's been really good because part of what i think is kind of problematic in most universities and in in academia is that people really don't engage with the public you know they don't really you know talk to them and and it's it's really a kind of myopic discourse you know for for what i i do in, in terms of my specific research you know it's really probably a community of about you know 10 to 20 people who actually look at the same thing that i do and if you're just having a conversation among those few people i think not only do you not maybe get as much creativity as you could but it's also not really doing what i think we're supposed to do with the humanities and social science, which is contribute to a broader understanding of of humanity, and so I think to do that you need to engage with a, a broad audience. So that's what I was hoping to do with the podcast, and so far it's been it's been really it's really successful. I don't know how how has your experience been? You're you're much more of a veteran than I am. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been positive as well. So uh, it's uh, it's a kind of a niche thing where. You know, I guess it would be different if if we both had podcasts that were a bit more mainstream. I guess you could get those haters more, but uh, I think it's all niche. Uh, you know, uh, not that many people are interested in e- Egypt, but those who are, they probably listen to your podcast. Well, we'll see. So so far, I've got a couple hundred people listening. So I, I have to confess, I'm happy with that. Yeah. And and also, why why Egypt? Why did you want to study this? So it's 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 one of those things, at least for me, that initially, you know, I think a lot of us are interested in Egypt. At least as a as a as a child, I know I was just because it's so strange. You know, it's it's so strange, and at at the same time, it's so it's so grand. You know, when you look at the fact that in, into the Middle Ages, the pyramid was the largest you know, man-made structure on earth. And, you know, Karnak, you still have, you know, is the largest kind of religious site, um, you know, on earth. You know, there's so many, you know, temples built together, you know, and then, of course, you have these, you know, mixed images of, of, you know, animals mixed with gods. So I think that initially is just really kind of fascinating because it's so different. But when I, when I got to university, I actually, as an undergraduate, studied kind of, I had two kind of different passions. I always knew I wanted to do history, but I studied ancient history and then I also studied uh, modern 
uh, political history, specifically Cold War studies. Um, so, so that was something that for me, uh, it was really interesting to kind of on the one hand looking at you know the Cold War to see what was affecting my life growing up you know as a child in the 80s, but then on the other hand to see these ancient cultures that had threads that kind of continued to affect us today. But what really kind of gravitated me more towards Egypt is really two things. One, there's still a lot of work to be done in Egyptology. Um, a lot of people don't realize this, but there are relatively few Egyptologists. There's lots of popular interest, but not that many places you can actually even study it. In, the, in, the, in all of North America, there's you know, maybe about 12 places you can actually get a PhD in Egyptology. Um, and most programs that you would go to would only have you know two, if you're lucky, maybe three people that you would study under. So it's not a huge discipline. Um, and that means that there's still a lot of work to be done. There, there's literally hundreds, if not thousands, of, of texts that we haven't translated yet. You know, there's hundreds of archaeological sites that we've never done at. So that, to me, was really kind of, was really appealing. Um, it was much different than a lot of academic fields where, you know, people are reanalyzing the same material over and over again. Um, you know, for, for my main work in my dissertation, I looked at about 500 what are called votive stela, and those are objects that look like tombstones. But individuals would write prayers on them, they'd put images of themselves worshiping the gods. And I studied 494 of these things that had just been sitting in the Cairo Museum in the basement, never published, never studied since about 1922. Um, because there's so many other things to study. Um, so, so that to me is, is really where I felt like going into Egyptology, you actually, you know, got to do groundbreaking work. Um, and I'm a bit naive about other fields. Um, I think that you have that same kind of probably feeling in the sciences. Um, but I know I didn't feel drawn that way for, for a lot of the other social sciences and humanities that I studied. It's funny with Egypt that it's kind of like a civilization or a people that has fallen in a way because they used to be the most advanced on earth and now I know there's charities who go out into the smaller towns of Egypt and teach them how to create sanitary toilets you know it's like going from building pyramids to not being able to uh, what what do you think was the main reason how they like fell compared to how they were before so for me what i when i kind of what i think it is is that egypt was around for so long because they were really lucky um when you look at mesopotamia which comes up you know right at the same time egypt um you know civilizations in the tigris and euphrates but what you see in mesopotamia is just, you know, constant kind of warfare. A big, you know, city will come up, it will have an empire, it might last a couple hundred years, and then another city comes in. So you might have, you know, you know, Akkadians, and then you might have Ur, and then of course we get to like, you know, some of the bigger empires like the Assyrians, but they don't last too long. Then you have the Persians, and then you have the Greeks, and then you have the Romans. You have this kind of churn where there's this constant fighting. And Egypt, I think, was really, really blessed because they just had wonderful natural borders. You know, you've got this thin strip along the Nile, and that's the only livable land in Egypt. Um, and even with modern irrigation and things, they're not able to extend it too, too much. And so you've got, you know, the Eastern Desert and the Red Sea to one side. You've got, you know, the Sahara um, to the other. North, you've got the Mediterranean. Um, if you're looking at coming from the kind of northeast, you've got the Sinai Peninsula someone would have to cross. So really the only kind of, you know, challengers that they had for most of their history was the Nubians to the south, and they were pretty brutal to them. Um, and they never, well, there's a period later on in history um, where the Nubians actually take over Egypt, but that's not until pretty late. That's the 25th dynasty, and that's not until about 700 um, BCE. Um, and then you've got the Libyans to, to, the, to the northeast, um, and they're, again, not really a major challenger either. So we actually have a civilization that if you go from the time when they're building pyramids to when you actually maybe have some foreigners kind of coming into Egypt, um, we're looking at a period of about a thousand years, a thousand years of uninterrupted civilization. 
And I think that that actually makes them, you know, probably stagnate a little bit. I think that they don't have that pressure. And I think that, you know, it's, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I, I, you know, when I'm working, if I, I need a little bit of a deadline, if I don't have any pressure, I, I may just not get to it. And I think that societally, that's something that we see in Egypt. I think that when we look at really when they're at their height, at their empire, which is in the New Kingdom, that's as a direct result of the fact that they did have these kind of um, individuals come in and, and take control and they were seen as foreign rulers. They had some pressure from some Asiatics coming kind of from the modern Syria-Palestine area and then pressure from the Nubians to the south. And once Egypt got control again, you know, they, they conquered and really spread out their empire because it was so traumatic because for, you know, again, a millennia or more, if you even go back to before the pyramids when the Egyptians were still there, they had never faced foreigners and never had that issue. But at the same time, because they were so concentrated on their land, everything really was just focused there. So even though they spread out their empire and went, you know, you know, all the way kind of to almost to Turkey, to modern day Turkey, they didn't attempt to colonize it. They, they didn't attempt to uh, put Egyptians there. Egyptians really seemed to not want to be there. The Egyptians wanted to be kind of at home in Egypt. So what they would do is they would conquer these regions and they would say, okay, you know what, we're going to go in, we're going to talk to the king. He's going to swear a loyalty oath to the Pharaoh. We're maybe going to send a couple of his sons to the Egyptian court to be raised as princes here and then sent home. And that way they're going to be kind of indoctrinated and they're going to be, and they're going to be good vassals for Egypt. But they really didn't crack down on that region. And it's interesting that what we see is some of the, the, the great pharaohs that we talk about sometimes, like Ramses II, what they do is then once they start getting pressure from some of the, the big empires like the, the Mitanni or the Hittites, they just slowly, you know, let some of those vassal states go. Um, and they're not really, you know, they seem to not really be that concerned with maintaining that kind of land. Um, and that's where for them, um, when that when that kind of period of stability comes to an end, it's not from any outside pressure. The Egyptians, if we talk about kind of going to the 11th century BCE, when you have this group called the Sea Peoples that's going in and just destroying, you know, you know, a lot of the areas of the ancient Near East, the Egyptians actually repel them. Um, they survive, but they have political infighting within their country, and that's what leads to their to their downfall. So they have these really wonderful borders. They don't seem to have a concept of empire. And there, I think, and I think that that just leads to the time that we actually get to some of the great kind of military forces like the Assyrians and like the Persians. Um, they don't have a standing army in Egypt and they're just, for that, they're, they're not ready to handle, to handle that. So they just, you know, get taken over. And very interestingly, the groups that do take them over really seem to like Egyptian culture. Um, the Roman emperors, the Ptolemies, even the Persians, they depict themselves in Egypt as Egyptian pharaohs. Um, so even those cultures seem to have this reverence for Egypt and this respect for it. And I think that even to kind of way fast forward in history, that that's by the time you get to, you know, Cleopatra and, and Anthony and Julius Caesar and Octavian and, and all of that drama, um, it's really only, only then that Egypt loses its, its dependence. And that's pretty much, I think, directly as a result of Cleopatra choosing the wrong side and going with Mark Anthony against, against Octavian. And that's really the point, I think, where Egypt then just goes into decline. And, and from there, what you simply have is, you know, you, you have the Romans taking over, you know, then you're going to have it taken over by the Byzantine Empire, then you're going to have it taken over um, by the Arab Empire. So now we're moving to like 642 AD. And at that point, they're just a people who's kind of constantly being taken over by these various groups. Um, so, so yeah, that's a, that's a really long answer, hopefully not too boring, but I, I think that it's that kind of, um, you know, in a way staleness and reliance on those natural borders that led them to not really be able to handle some of the major threats that actually came about later. So you've done many trips to Egypt, uh, when you did your studies? Yeah. So I've been to Egypt, uh, four times, um, you know, Three times I've been there um, kind of for travel and then also working with uh, an archaeological mission. Um, and then one time I was there just for research. I'm sad to say I haven't been back in five years. So I was actually there 
just before the revolution um, in the Arab Spring, but I haven't, I wasn't there during it and I haven't been back um, since. Uh, and, and in many ways, I think that the country has changed a bit since then. Is there a lot of sites still not discovered or sites that people know are there, but they just haven't dug them up yet? There definitely are, are a lot of sites that we know are there that we're just not digging up. Um, you know, one of the things uh, about about Egypt is because it's so dry and it and it's and the sand actually preserves so well. We really don't want to dig if we can help it. Um, there's many sites that we actually know are there, but we don't want to excavate them because they're better preserved where they are. You know, we can allow archaeologists in the future to go in and to excavate those sites and they're going to have modern tools. They're going to, they're going to do a, a better job, I think, than we can today. Because the biggest issue when it comes to archaeology is there's actually a lot of funding that you can get from state governments, but even, um, even private governments. You know, you'll see excavations sponsored by Mercedes and, you know, by some of these big different companies but there's very little money for conservation. And that's really the hard part is when you excavate a site, you then need to take care of it. Um, what we do now a lot is we backfill. So, you know, we'll, we'll excavate down, uh, we'll go through the different layers. We'll, we'll try to investigate the site. And then every year as we're getting ready to leave, we backfill the site with clean sand that preserves it. And then also is a really good marker because then we have a single homogenous layer. It's all the same sand. We can then go back and clear that out and, and get back to work. But what's been really bad is since since the revolution, the economy is so bad and people are really struggling and many people feel kind of forced to uh, do illicit kind of excavation to try to get antiquities to sell just to support themselves, uh, which is which is really sad. I mean, that's, as you kind of said, that's, that's how poor the country really is. Um, so oftentimes some of these sites that we know are there or even sites that people are excavating, but that they're not excavating right now because it's either too hot or because it's just not the season when they excavate. Most most sites don't really work year round. Um, you know, people are going in and then just digging, you know, huge, you know, kind of holes and sometimes even craters straight down, hoping to find statues or texts or amulets or things like that, so that they'll be able to, so that they'll be able to. Um, you know, get material to sell and to, to, to support their families. Um, so it's, it really is, it really is quite sad, but yeah, there's, there's still quite a lot there, um, that we don't touch just because we can't protect it. All those amazing graves filled with things are, are any one of them still intact or have they all been looted through the years? Well, it's, it's actually, so in terms of that, that's actually, probably the most exciting thing that's going on right now and probably definitely the most exciting thing I would say within my lifetime to happen in Egyptology. I'm sure that we will find probably at some point some intact private graves. And so by private, I just mean non-royal. Um, the only the only king's grave that we found that, that, was, that was intact was the, the famous tomb of Tutankhamun. And you kind of, you know, are probably familiar with all the gold and the treasures that came from that. Well, they recently started doing some tests with some new technology in Egypt using thermal scanning. And what thermal scanning is, is they just, they look at the walls at different times of day or in, it, for the, the case of the tomb of Tutankhamun, they looked at the walls. And in the case of the pyramid, they would look at the pyramid stones and they would look at them in the morning, at midday, at night, all different times to get a sense of how much heat these areas were we're keeping or retaining. And what it really looks like is that there's actually one, maybe two um, chambers behind walls in the tomb of King Tutankhamun. So there may actually be another tomb behind that. And once and one scholar, Nicholas Reeves, has speculated that that's actually the tomb of Nefertiti. Um, that would be, if it was there, would be intact because we didn't even know it was there. So there's obviously no evidence of it being robbed in antiquity. And then in the Great Pyramid, um, it seems to be when we look at these two large stones that there's a chamber of air behind it or that there's something because the, the thermal pattern is so much different that it's clear the material behind these stones is not, is not solid. Um, 
so there might even be then kind of another tomb in there, another grave in the in the Great Pyramid, or, or just another chamber. But that could be something that's completely, in both cases, undisturbed that could, you know, have, again, more of those kind of gold treasures that we see. Or it could be, you know, text. It could be foods that they had to take into the afterlife. We really don't know. But, you know, that, that scanning that they just did, we just they just started doing about two weeks ago, three weeks ago. So, you know, archaeology does move slow, but I think probably, you know, fairly soon, maybe within a year or so, they're probably going to take some small cameras and maybe, you know, drill some small holes underneath to try to kind of get to these areas to see what's inside. And there absolutely, you know, could be, um, you know, something that's that's undiscovered. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm really, really amazed at it because it's something that if you'd have asked me a month ago if this was a possibility, I would have said, you know, no, that that these two major sites, the Great Pyramid and the Tomb of King Tut, probably the two most famous things could actually have things hidden inside that we haven't seen before. It would be nice if it was like the manuscript reserve of the Library of Alexandria that got burned down and we lost our whole history when that happened. So it would be nice if there were some manuscripts in there rather than gold, I think. I, I'm with you, to be honest. I'm a, I'm a text person and I would, I would much rather have, you know... Um, I would much rather have some documents kind of talking about, uh, you know, astronomy, talking about mathematics, talking about medicine. I, I would much rather see that because um, the gold stuff is nice, but it doesn't, really, it doesn't really tell us that much more about, you know, who they are as a people. But to be able to have their own words and to have some of those things that we know are lost would be, would be far more valuable, I think. So what's your theory or how, what's your belief when it comes to why they why they built the pyramids because there are like endless amount of theories behind why they build those Yeah yeah there there are definitely a ton I mean I'm I'm very traditional in that way um in terms of their dating and in terms of their function you know when I've when I've looked at the at, at the pyramids uh well, and I should say here, so so to just to kind of limit it, we're probably specifically talking about the Great Pyramid built in the Fourth Dynasty, especially the the three at Giza, because in the Fifth Dynasty um, we actually have texts inside. So those texts actually tell us what they were doing. So we kind of know from from those pyramids who they were built for. Their you know what the what the function was because we have all these ritual texts on the walls. The fourth dynasty pyramids are a little bit harder because at that point, they're not writing anything inside intentionally. We do have some things written inside. We have um, we have actually kind of graffiti inside from the workers. So, for instance, in the Great Pyramid, we have um, a couple of the groups of workers who are building it have their names written on the blocks. And it will say, like, the workers of Khufu. You know, they have different things like that. So that does kind of tell us that the people building it were building it for, for Khufu. Um you know, who traditionally is who we associate with the Great Pyramid. And again, with his name, does seem to be, um, does seem to be, at least for me, a tomb. The function of it, I think, is actually very interesting. So while I think it's a tomb, I also think that, you know, the, the whole point of, of that tomb was to be, was to be a machine. And it was to be a machine to help the king be, be reborn. So the pyramid shape itself, um, it goes back to a time in Egyptian mythology called the Septepi. And the Septepi literally means the first occasion. And that's the occasion where there's, there's the god Atum. And there's actually a lot of Egyptian creation myths, but this is kind of, I think, the main one. And the god Atum exists in nothingness with just, you know, these chaotic waters around him. And he brings himself to life through either an act of masturbation or, you know, through, through autophilatio. So he's either, you know, going down on himself or he masturbates, but it's that sexual urge and that sexual power that brings him into being. And he's brought into being on, on a pyramid. Um, and the pyramid, I think that that shape actually comes from them looking at, at what they saw in nature because the Nile would flood every year and it would bring with it water and it would bring with it soil and when those waters receded, that first spot of land, you would have 
um, that black land that was fertile where life would come. But they would also see frogs and snakes. So that's kind of how they envisioned this time of early creation as a mound or a pyramid associated with frogs and snakes, these amphibians who would have been alive in those kind of chaotic waters. Um, so by making the shape a pyramid, they're trying to give the king those creative powers um, so that he can, you know, revivify himself and be reborn. And then when we look at the alignment of some of the shafts in the pyramid, the, the north the north-south kind of shafts, they actually seem to point towards certain stars. Um, one of the ones that's really important is this group of circumpolar stars. Um, and those are stars that, by where they sit, they're always visible on the horizon. They're not, say, like, you know, Sirius or the dog star, which would actually disappear before the horizon for a bit. And then when it would come back, was kind of in the summer that was actually signaling to the Egyptians that the inundation was coming. These stars were always visible and the Egyptians called them the the unwearying ones. And that was the ideal type of type of thing for the king. These stars who were seen as kind of gods and you could be like one of those who never sets, never goes before the ho- be below the horizon is always alive, is always present. Um, so I think that this that that type of symbolism of creative energy of aiming towards some of these spots in the afterlife and trying to help the king to himself become a god i think that that's really what the function of them was and uh, i read somewhere that the the tip of the pyramid was pure gold uh, is this something that's factual or just a theory i'd like i'd like to think so <laughs> um i don't think we have any fact for that what we what we have seen and what we we do know about the the great pyramids that's a bit sad is When you see them now, they don't have any of the splendor that they would have once had. You know, the, most of them, um, you know, in, in places they look kind of jagged. But what you have to remember is those kind of that big, you know, limestone that's underneath that that serves as the core of the pyramid. That was not necessarily the best limestone, and they actually all of the pyramids were faced um, with what we call a Tura limestone, which is a very kind of bright white limestone. So the pyramids originally would have been completely smooth. They would have had this, you know, you know, kind of more of a gleaming white quality. Uh, one of the tombs, the tomb, the, or one of the pyramids, the Pyramid of Menkaure, would have actually had some, I think, um, other, you know, kind of red granite as well as part of its base. Um, but some of the texts tell us that they would have had that white, and then yeah, that they would have had, you know, a a tip of of gold that would have, you know, caught kind of the sun. Um, And I'd like to think that they actually, you know, looked like that. Maybe I don't know if it would have been, you know, pure gold or gold foil, but I think that 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 would have been the type of thing that would make sense to me with with the symbolism, and then would have also brought in not just the kind of stellar phenomenon and associating it with 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 the with the stars, but then also you know associating it with the sun. So the Egyptians that way like to cover all their bases. So even though we have these shafts that are kind of aligned north-south with the stars, we would have also had a temple associated with the pyramid that would have been east-west associated with the rising and the setting of the sun. So I, I would like to think that they that they would have had a pyramidian like that that was, you know, either gold or polished bronze that, that would have, you know, you know, caught the light. And uh, the concept of, of one god uh, is from Egypt, if I'm correct, right? The monotheism. I would say I would say so definitely yes C- certainly at least the the idea of of the first recorded instance of monotheism um, you know we have you know and people will will argue about this um, but when we we look at a, a pharaoh named Akhenaten and he lived in the middle of the the 14th century before the Common Era he starts a religious revolution and he says specifically in some of the texts of this god and the god is called the Aten. Um, he says, "You are the only god. You know, no other gods exist." He goes throughout the country and destroys the name of the other gods. He even goes in different places throughout the country, and in, and and destroys the plural writing of gods. So, so the Egyptian word for god was Necher, and the plural was Necheru. And anytime you would find Necheru in certain places, we see he would destroy it. So that I think is is clearly the first attested monotheism. That 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 we have in the world, um, people argue as to whether or not he forced everyone 
to, to adhere to that because we can see from the archaeology, even at, even at his capital city, that individuals did have amulets of other gods. Um, but publicly, it seems that they had to kind of limit their worship to this one god, uh, at least from the temples that we see. And then even the tombs from the period, individuals weren't allowed to show those other gods. Um, now, for, for ancient Egypt, I think that it was really a, a bit too much to make to go from this wonderful um, world of myths and multiple temples and multiple gods to just saying, now we just have one god. You know, that, that movement that he started dies out pretty shortly after his death. So it only lasts around, you know, probably 20 years or so. But for me, there's no doubt that that's the first attested example of monotheism in the world. Did it somehow influence other cultures before it uh, died? I think so. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of ancient uh, myths that actually will talk about this. So there's a, a Ptolemaic priest named Manetho, and Ptolemaic um, is from the Ptolemies, and Ptolemy was a, a general of Alexander, and he's the one who took over Egypt. So we're dealing with you know a period you know around you know 300 BCE. Um, to about you know you know thirty um, A.D. that that's when that's when we actually have or about thirty before B.C. excuse me that's when we actually have this group called the Ptolemies. So we're dealing with a about a thousand years later. But he writes that um, it was actually kind of a priest of this pharaoh Akhenaten who starts this religious revolution uh, that fled that went and in, in, into Israel and actually founded kind of the the, the Jewish religion. Um, so, so some people already made some of those associations. What I personally think, we do have evidence um, prior to this in ancient Egypt for what we would call henotheism. And henotheism is where there's lots of gods, but you choose to worship one. So individuals, um, it's limited, but there does seem to be, do seem to be individuals who had this personal connection. Um, and I would actually argue that that's what Judaism is. Like if you look at some of like the commandments, um, when the first commandment is thou shalt, you know, have other, no other gods before me, um, that to me says, okay, that's kind of an, ex an acknowledgement that there are other gods, um, you know, not worshiping idols, things like that. That's acknowledging that those things exist, but it's saying that, you know, your God is more powerful. And we even see some of those stories in the Bible where, you know, the, the statue of, you know, Yahweh, or a statue of a god will be put, you know, next to the Ark of the Covenant or something like that. And the statue of the other god, you know, the next morning they find it destroyed and things like that. So I actually think in the Jewish tradition, it's more this idea of henotheism where there might be multiple gods, but you think one is more powerful or you focus on one. That concept exists before we have the idea of monotheism in ancient Egypt by Akhenaten. But what happens, I think, because Akhenaten, I think, is so traumatic... And to explain how traumatic it is, I kind of need to just give a little bit of context. Um, in ancient Egypt, it was thought that you needed to maintain the temples and you needed every day to do what they called the daily ritual, which multiple times a day you would feed the god, you would clothe the god, you would offer it incense, you would offer it wine and food and, and, and play music and sing for it because the god actually lived in this statue. And if the God wasn't happy, then we're going to end up at a situation where the God is going to make a bad Nile flood. It's going to have a bad agricultural harvest. So you had to take care of the gods. But also, the gods needed to be protected. And that by you feeding them and by the religious ceremonies carried out there and by the festivals that would occur, that those were all things that were meant to simultaneously recreate the God and recreate the universe. So there's this idea that the temple itself is a microcosm of the universe and that the God's activities there help to recreate the universe and to keep the universe going in a good fashion. So, so that's the context which, with which Egyptians are living for thousands of years. And then all of a sudden Akhenaten comes in and he closes down the temples. And he says, okay, you're not allowed to worship these gods anymore. And what you have to remember about why that's so striking, or at least why it's so striking for me, is in ancient Egypt, there's, there's no concept that you could be an atheist. We don't have that type of idea. But you have to remember that, that the pharaohs 
were not just the heads of the state, but they, they were also the high priests. So this would be like if everybody in the world was Catholic and the Pope comes out tomorrow and says, um, you know, there is, there is no God, there's, there's, there's no Jesus, there's no Holy Spirit. It's actually this one minor saint. Let's say it's St. Christopher. St. Christopher is really um, the only God. I'm going to close down the Vatican. Um, I'm going to go start a new city somewhere in Italy dedicated to St. Christopher. Um, you're going to close down all the other temples um, because, because none of those, you know, or none of those other churches are, are actually real or dedicated to these other figures. Um, it's only St. Christopher and you can't even worship St. Christopher. He's the only God, but I'm his son and I'm his prophet. So you have to worship St. Christopher through me. Um, that I think that type of extremism is, is really how it would have been perceived of by the people in Egypt. And I think that that was really traumatic for their psyche because they're depending on these temples in their mind to help keep the universe going. Uh, many of them would have had, you know, you know, gotten food from the temples and things like that. And I think that when the Pharaoh takes away that official religion, I think that it caused people to look inward more. So I think that that causing them to look inward more then results in, in, an, era, in an era right afterwards where we all of a sudden have a lot more of these ideas of personal piety. The idea that you would be, you know, you, you would be associated with one God. So all of a sudden, once Amarna ends, we start to have a lot of these personal prayers that talk about devotion to a God and forgiveness. Um, before, we used to have things like letters to the dead. Um, and as we now evolve, we start to actually see letters to gods. So it seems like that trauma had it forced individuals to, to look inward for connections with gods. And I think that they found them there, or, or at least they believed they found them there. And that led to them then um, embracing gods at an individual level. And I do think that that idea then, then spread throughout, um, throughout kind of Egypt in many ways, and probably to, to, the, to the Near East as well, um, you know, into going into the Israel, Syria, Palestine, anywhere. And you actually... Um, see some kind of fascinating connections between some of the texts that Akhenaten did. There's this one famous one called The Great Hymn to the Aten, and it actually is very similar to a biblical psalm, Psalm 104. It uses the same imagery, and what, it, what they basically talk about is that when the God, that God creates the earth, um, and that he shines, and he's you know, a sun and he gives life to everything. And when he's not shining, it's like death is on the earth. Um, but that he's, you know, shines for all people and he shines for all animals and he's the one who gives them life. Um, so I do think that you can clearly see examples of that monotheistic tradition going into ancient Israel and even making its way to the Bible. So, so absolutely, I think that that influence was there. But wasn't Akhenaten's one god? Wasn't that the the sun? So it's really it's really interesting. It was the sun in a way. Um, but the thing about Akhenaten is, so so one of the things about ancient Egypt is is when they would have gods, gods weren't just limited to a single form. Gods would merge with other gods, even even temporarily. Um, gods would have a different form depending on what type of the day it was. So to take the sun god, the sun god really is is often personified as three different gods. In the morning, he he's the god Hepri, who's often characterized as a scarab um, or a dung beetle, um, because dung beetles would would roll dung and they'd put their eggs in it, and it would, you know, their their those eggs would hatch. And the Egyptians saw that as this this. This, this animal kind of recreating itself. And they, they thought of that as the sun. The sun dies every day, but is reborn every night. So, so that was one thing where um, they kind of saw the sun god as that dung beetle in the morning. And then kind of through midday, they would think of it as a more powerful, mature god. Um, and that would be like the god Ray Harakti. And he's, and even that name means Ray Horus of the, of the two horizons. But he's kind of a powerful, mature mature sun god who's going to smite you know his enemies 
And then as it would go towards sunset, it was, it was the god Atum or Ray Atum, um, who's kind of a, you know, an older god who's failing, who dies, and then has to travel through the netherworld um, at night to join with the god Osiris. And it's only by that joining with Osiris, which is, which is temporary and happens in, in the deepest part of night, that Ray gets access to creative regenerative powers so that he can be resurrected to then be born again as Hepri the next day. So that happens every day. So the Egyptians would, would personify different aspects of these gods. Um, and behind it, there's this idea that, you know, there might be one sort of divine creative force, and these are just different aspects of his personality. Um, but, but, you know, they would definitely personify them in different ways. I think to, to contextualize Akhenaten a bit, though, I think there's certainly some political motivations um, and in fact, I would, I'm a bit more cynical. <laughs> um, so I would say that probably the, the political motivations were his primary motivations. So he was trying to get rid of some of these powerful priesthoods that I think he thought were maybe just getting too much money or, or too much power. So he actually doesn't go with any of the traditional gods. Like you would assume if he's creating a religion based on one god, he would say, okay, it's Ray um, or it's Amun, some of the big gods. He chooses a relatively minor um, form of the god called the Aten. And what the Aten is, is the Aten doesn't even have a kind of human form like we're used to seeing. The Aten is just the sun disk. And that was actually intentional because what, what Akhenaten does is he says, he completely gets rid of any myth. He says, we're not, this idea of the god traveling through, through the netherworld at night, No. Um, we're not going to follow that anymore. We're only going to focus on what we can actually see and touch and experience. And what we can see and touch and experience is just that sun disk that comes every day and moves across the sky. So his whole religion is just built on that. It's built on this, this Aten, this sun disk. Um, so it's that, it's that, that one kind of aspect. Um, so obviously that, that, that when he's, when he's, when he's after his death, when he's died and they get rid of it, the Aten actually is one of the things that kind of then disappears because it has such of that negative connotation. Um, but that was the one God that he chose, that he chose as kind of representative of his new religion. And we certainly, I don't think, see that name spreading. Um, but I think the concepts that he develops under that God and with that one God do spread. Didn't he also build like a, a city with uh, schools and science and... Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me that that's actually one of the things that really points to this being a, a political movement. Um, you know, Akhenaten first actually tries to build a temple to the god, the, the Aten, at Karnak, or, which is, which, or at Thebes. So he tries within the heart of the very powerful priesthood of Amun... Um, this region of Thebes, where he's part of, Akhenaten is part of the 18th dynasty, which is a family from Thebes. So he tries to build this temple and to do this activity to the new god there. But it seems like it's just, you know, there's too much memory of the other gods there. He can't get away from it. So in, in the fifth year of his reign, he goes and he founds a brand new city called Akhenaten. And he claims that, you know, he's sailing down the Nile and the sun kind of perfectly falls between these kind of this, this wadi, this, this region of, of, of washout where these kind of two mountains come together. And he says, you know, that that's a perfect image of the sun rising in the horizon. Um, so this is where, you know, I'm going to found my new city. And absolutely, it's a planned city. He builds two temples there. We have workshops. We have workers' villages. We have temples. To, uh, we have palaces. We have we have houses for individuals. It's a completely new and planned city that's all built around uh, him and this religious movement that he started. And uh, then uh, he got murdered, right? Or is that uh, also like a, a theory? I you know I wish we knew. And, and to be honest, we don't have anything that points to that. It really surprises me that nobody tried to murder him. Um, that's, I think, the most surprising thing to me about Akhenaten. Um, he rules for around 17 years. So, um, so it doesn't appear that there was 
any sort of immediate backlash, certainly against him. Um, he moves, he founds his new city. Everything as far as that goes seems to be okay. Um, he dies and then there's, there are some weird things that happen with his succession. So he's succeeded by a female Pharaoh, um, who I think is probably his daughter, although some people would argue is Nefertiti called Nefru Nefru Aten, but she only appears to rule for about three years. Um, then we have a, a pharaoh named Smenkare. He rules for about a year. Um, I think that that's a younger brother of Akhenaten. And then we have King Tut who comes on and he rules for about nine to ten years. Um, so we do have some kind of succession issues there. But what we don't have is anything that actually points to the fact that there was any sort of backlash against him or attempt to kill him. Um, which to me really is extraordinary because he's taking a lot of power away from a lot of people. And I think the only thing that kind of points to why that might not have been the case is when we look at the end of the 18th dynasty. So when we, when we, I just kind of went through to King Tut, but after King Tut dies, we have a, an older guy named I who takes over and I is a former vizier in general. And I only rules for a couple years. He's older. He dies. And then we have a, a, a pharaoh named Haremheb, who's another not blood relation to any of these any of these people to Akhenaten and his family. But he's another military general. Um, he rules for a long time. I think about twenty seven years. Um, and that brings the eighteenth dynasty to a close. And then we start a new dynasty, the nineteenth dynasty, and that is is founded by another general, um, Ramses. So I think that what happened is Akhenaten making these extreme religious reforms really closely aligned himself with the military, that that became his support um, so that he had, a, you know, he did have a kind of protective structure around him. He aligned with the military um, so that there wasn't any, short, any sort of a kind of physical attack against him. Um, but certainly um, even those individuals um, – and, and actually, the the old, the religion that Akhenaten started was actually abolished under King Tut, King Tutankhamun, who I think was actually his nephew. Um, some people think that it was his son. Regardless, um, it was under that individual who, again, he would have been, you know, probably twelve or so at the time that that the that the that the old religion was brought back in. So he wasn't really probably making the decisions. Um, but there does seem to be that kind of reconciliation that happens, not immediately, but really uh, years after Akhenaten's death that suggests that there wasn't any sort of assassination or political power play where the priests came in and killed Akhenaten and then ushered the, the old religion back in. It actually took a little bit of time after his death. I imagine uh, you can verify if it's true, but maybe people had more respect for a pharaoh than they would have for like a Roman emperor or a king or a pope like maybe it was even higher in in fear or love I think that that I absolutely think that that seems to be the case um, and we see some extraordinary things written there there's one there's one text and it's from a an old kingdom tomb and it's from a guy named Rawer and he actually writes that he's He's, you know, at kind of a ceremony with the king and the mace, the weapon that the king holds, accidentally kind of like brushes him. Um, and the king says, you know, you know, stop, you know, don't worry, you'll be OK. And he kind of commands his mace and his divine power to not harm this man, that his mace touched him, but he he really didn't mean for that to be the case. And the implication giving in the text and the fact that this individual chose to, to include it in his tomb is that the king, as a warrior with this mace, was such a kind of feared and powerful godlike figure that even that kind of accidental brush of the king um, could have been, you know, disastrous and could have, you know, killed him. So, so had not the king said that, he might have died. And we do seem to see that, that, that power. Um, now, I think, you know, those who are probably really close to the king – um, I think when you're close to somebody like that, you probably get to see them as more fallible figures. I think you probably get to have a better idea of, oh, they are human. And the, the Egyptians certainly didn't think that that they were immortal. But they did think that the office they held was divine and that they had a divine connection to the gods. Um, and much like we see um, with some of the, the, the Roman emperors, there was 
a whole mythology that the kings would promote that they actually were descended from the gods that um, specifically um, that there was a god Amun and this this would happen in the new kingdom that 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 god would come down and would take the shape of the king um, and it would impregnate you know the queen so that the the son who's ruling um, is not actually the son of the pharaoh but is the son of a god um, so they did seem to have that and certainly these individuals, you know, you know, seem to be really treated with, with awe and respect. Um, and it's not until the end of the New Kingdom, about, you know, 1070 before the Common Era, that we actually have a split where the priesthood kind of um, divorces themselves from that political pharaoh and really makes a move to kind of get power on their own. Um, and they start what we call the, the God State of Amun, um, where they're actually kind of ruling more as, you know, priests and getting, trying to kind of get away from the Pharaoh having all that power. But for most of their history, yeah, I think that the Pharaohs were seen as, as these kind of divine gods, um, who, who, you know, were, were, I guess, demigods is a better word, um, who were kind of there among them and who, whose job it was to take care of them. They, 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 in many places, you know, the idea, this is another thing that travels into the Bible, but um, the pharaohs are kind of referred to as shepherds. They're there as the shepherds of mankind who are meant to um, both discipline them and to, to protect people from all of the evils out there. So I do think that, that they would have been, had a lot of awe of these figures. I also think they look very androgynous, many of them. They really do, yeah. Um, you know, and I think that that's to go back to Akhenaten for a second. I actually think that when you look at the artistic style um, that he's devised, I think that it's meant to to really have that androgynous look. It it looks there's certainly masculine elements to it, but he's given himself the same proportion as as Nefertiti, and I think he really does try to show himself um, as part man and part woman. Um, I I kind of have a a, a personal theory that I like that. The idea behind that is that maybe they're trying to show themselves, um, at least in the case of Akhenaten, as kind of a mother and a father figure, that maybe that's one of the things he's trying to encode as an artistic message. Um, but we, we do see often in some, of the, the de- in some depictions that andro- androgyny. Um, but then we do have others that are very, almost I would say, hyper-masculine, um, where they show themselves with you know, extremely broad shoulders and powerful legs, but small waists. Um, <clears throat> from their mummies, you know, we can tell the mummies really kind of run the gamut that they, you know, would have been, you know, many we have were, you know, only about, you know, five foot, um, five one, you know, others might be as tall as like five eleven. Um, certainly in their everyday appearance, they seem to kind of just be, be, you know, normal looking. Um, we do see some kind of ailments, um, like King Tut had a club foot, um, a slightly cleft palate, um, and some people, you know, speculate is that a result of kind of you know incest. Um, um, but many of them, uh, you know, don't appear to have had anything, say, like the the large chin we see with the Habsburgs or something like that. Although it's very difficult because many of the mummies that we do have, um, we don't know exactly, you know, who they are. Some of the mummies, uh, you know, we, we can say, okay, this is actually Ramses II, and we have this other mummy. But others, you know, we either don't have them or they were perhaps moved after they were originally buried and put into a new mass burial to protect them, but with no labeling. So we actually don't know if this was a pharaoh, if this was a prince, if this was just a nobleman, um, if it was a pharaoh, which pharaoh it was. So some of that stuff is 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 kind of difficult to to look at some of the images and to say, okay, was this actually a really strong masculine pharaoh or was this one a bit more androgynous? You know, because we can't necessarily connect the reality with the, the portraiture or the depictions that we see. Can you read the hieroglyphics? I can. Um, I, I must say that there are very few people <laughs> I've ever met who can actually read it um, as well as, say, like a modern language like English. So I do usually need a dictionary with me when I read. Um, um, but yeah, I, I, can, I can read hieroglyphs. Um, you know, there's actually, when it comes to the language, there's actually multiple phases and multiple different scripts that they wrote with. So the kind of classical one is Middle Egyptian. Um, which was used almost like Latin is used in the Catholic Church, um, even after it wasn't spoken um, for centuries and really millennia, they continued to write 
um, in that phase. And that's kind of the really nice typical thing you think of, you know, you know, birds and people and, and, you know, objects. Um, and then there are other forms where they have kind of cursive shorthand writings and, and, you know, really kind of abbreviated, um, writings that they would do more for like everyday writing or accounting. And, um, even later on they have, um, Egyptian written with the, the Greek alphabet plus a couple other characters and that's called Coptic. And that actually survives in the Coptic church in Egypt. So there are still people who kind of, you know, keep that ancient Egyptian alive. Um, um, but it's very, 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 very few. And it really is kind of just within the church. Um, cause of course in, in modern day Egypt, they speak Arabic. They don't speak actually the, the Egyptian language. Yeah. That's why in the beginning of, of this talk, I, I said that thing about, uh, how the modern Egyptian is so different from the ancient one, and even the language is not. So I'm I'm thinking maybe it's not even the same. Pe maybe they've died out completely. The the old Egyptians. I mean, a lot of and you know a lot of people have said that. Um, you know, there there was some of the early people in Egyptology went and looked, and they saw that the country was was so poor and as they put it in their writing so backwards uh, that these couldn't have been the people who, who built the pyramids. So they said that there must have been a, what they call dynastic race. That there was this race of super advanced people who came in, built the civilization, were alive for ancient Egyptian culture, and then they just kind of left. Um, I think that's not true and, and a bit racist. <laughs> um, but I think that, that, you know, certainly, you know, I think, um, that you have such a mixing there, um, that it's, that it's difficult to say, okay, what would, you know, an average ancient Egyptian have looked like? It was probably a bit like today, you know, when you go to Egypt, the people in the South are much darker, um, than the people in the North. Um, you know, they, they have different accents. Um, and I think that ancient Egypt was, was probably, you know, you know, much the same. Um, we do see some interesting, kind of things that, that kind of do flow through some of the, some of the, 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 what you might think of as more kind of like folk beliefs, um, actually do have their origins in certain ancient Egyptian reliefs. So some of the funeral stuff that they do, um, yeah, some of the superstitions, um, seem to kind of have those ties, even though, um, Egypt is, is, you know, now probably about, you know, 90%, I think Muslim, I think it's probably about 10% Christian. Um, so even though we have these two dominant religions, there's still some of those traces of those beliefs, but they're completely divorced, I think, from that original context. Um, so concepts like the evil eye and things like that, um, those now, you know, exist, but, but completely, you know, removed from the way that the ancient Egyptians might have conceived of them. Yeah, I guess it's a bit like yeah, I uh, come from the Scandinavian culture and we have the Norse uh, gods and the Viking religion and mythology and folklore and everybody knows it, but it's more like a fun thing on the side. It's nothing, nobody's really taking it that seriously. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, I always wonder, I'd be, I'd be curious to kind of get, uh, to get your opinion I, you know, I always wonder at what point did that did that come to be the case? I wonder if, if you know, even the ancient Egyptians themselves, if we were to, if we were to, you know, go back, you know, was there a point in their history where they looked at these myths not as things they believed, but just as you know, kind of fun stories? Um, I've I've seen that often presented by classicists in Rome, um, that you know that the Greeks and the Romans didn't really believe these stories, but that they were fun. They were more like, you know, literature. Um, they were, you know, that the things that we have were things to be preserved, but that we shouldn't think that they actually believed in these. Um, I really, I really don't know. Cause it's, it's so hard to say, you know, we, we can never recover what people actually believed. Um, but we can tell, at least for me that, especially on the aspect of, of, uh, of, you know, funerals and, and that type. I think that we can see that certainly they invested a huge and disproportionate amount of income and resources into preparing for the afterlife. So I do think that, that, that they certainly had a belief in that aspect of it, that, 
you needed to prepare for the afterlife, that you needed to have material, that, that in some way your afterlife was dependent upon the material resources that you had. Um, so I do think that there's some of those beliefs. Um, but yeah, did they actually believe that, you know, <laughs> the gods actually walked on earth and, you know, would, would rule in that way? That, that I, really, I really don't know about. It's it's also a bit of a contradiction when they believe in the immortality of the soul, but they still, in a materialistic way, want to bring all their stuff. Which why if they're immortal, why do they even need those things? You know. Yeah, exactly, and that's and and the biggest thing that always gets me is what what does that mean? You know, anybody who was mummified, anybody who has a tomb that's an individual who was part of the high elite. Like they were super, super wealthy. So what, what would the, what would the average individual do who didn't have any money? What would they think? We do see, I mean, that those individuals, they would be, they would be buried. Um, they would maybe bury them with a couple pots and out in the desert and that could protect them. But did they think that, did they think that, um, that they had as good of a chance as getting it to the afterlife as somebody who had a tomb and gold and all of that. I, I don't know. And I, I, I wonder if they were really, you know, a bit cynical. It's hard to say. Yeah. And didn't they even bury themselves with their servants? Yeah. And, and that's something where, you know, early on, um, the Egyptians absolutely did. We have examples of what we call retainer burials where individuals were, you know, killed to be buried with the king. Um, <laughs> you can imagine that that wasn't very popular and it, and it seems to, to kind of go away fairly quickly. And that's where we start to get these, these little servant statues or what we'll, what we'll call shabtis where they would put these objects in the tombs with them that were supposed to magically come to life as servants um, but yeah, originally they would have, they did bury people with them to kind of serve them in the afterlife, which if you're the servant is not a very good deal that even after you die, you have to keep being someone's servant. Yeah, it's a long contract. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> no, it was a couple of years ago where I heard that they actually thought they discovered the Tannis, most known for most people from the Indiana Jones film. But um, it, it, that they actually is a place in, in the desert somewhere, and they were discussing if they actually might have found it. Do you know anything about this? Yeah, so so we do have um, uh, the site of of you know of Tanis, and we have some. There, there's a whole kind of later period um, dynasty that was that was ruling from there. Um, so it is it is a it is a site that we know. It's it's nothing kind of unfortunately. Um, like the the Indiana Jones um, example, you know, it's it's unfortunately it's one of these sites that's um, that's in the delta. So the delta, if you're looking at a at a map of Egypt, um, the 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 main part of of Egypt, or by far, you know, the biggest part is the you know the thin strip where there's just the one Nile River, and that's you know you know most of the country. But once you get closer to the Mediterranean, um, it actually splits off. And what you see is that, is that it splits into a bunch of different branches, and these branches form an alluvial plain. So that area um, is all of a sudden much more marshy, um, and, it's much, and it's much more difficult um, and it's much more difficult to excavate there. And because it's wet, the preservation is not nearly as good. Um, and that's the region where we find Tanis. It's in, it's in the, the, the northeast of the delta. Um, and it, so it is a site that, that we have. Um, it's unfortunately, unfortunately, I think, not as well preserved as we would like. Um, it's, a, it's a site that's especially important in what we call the third intermediate period, um, which is from about 1070 to um, about 700 um, before the Common Era. Um, and that's where we have um, a family um, who's ruling a significant part of the country, um, but they're also competing with other pharaohs. So this is a period when there's, when there's um, political destability and you have multiple individuals claiming the title of pharaoh throughout the country. 
Um, so, we, so we do have that site, um, and it is a it is a good site, and it's and it's and it's a important site. But yeah, like I said, unfortunately, not the not as great as a, a preservation as we would like to as we would like to see. And no Ten Commandments yet. <laughs> no, not yet. Okay, cool. Well, uh, we talked for uh, a while now, and it was very interesting. And you could probably talk about Egypt for for uh, hours and hours. Uh, can you just say uh, the the web website so people can check it out? Oh yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Um, so my website um, is called uh, it's at Eric's Guide to Ancient Egypt dot com. That's also the name of my podcast is Eric's Guide to Ancient Egypt, and you can find it on iTunes, on Stitcher. Um, you can also find it on my website for you know Android. Um, so yeah, hopefully you know if you're if you're interested in, in ancient Egypt, you can check it out and thanks for having me Alex it's been a lot of fun and maybe we can do it again in the future yeah yeah that would be great thank you thank you have a great day to listen to Eric's podcast go to ericsguidetoancientegypt.com now let's close this episode with a track called Flogging a Dead Horse and this track can be found on our effects album So Long and Thanks for All the Shoes If you want to check out more of NoFX music, go to NoFX, that's N-O-F-X, officialwebsite.com. And all the links can also be found on naturalbornalchemist.com. See you all next Sunday. Freedom is in the mind.